kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 16, verses 10 through 15. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met us there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. In our last study, we saw a mighty and extraordinary intervention of the Holy Spirit in the work of the Apostle Paul to bring him to the conclusion that he should go across the Aegean Sea to the land of Macedonia and preach the gospel to the people there. Bringing the gospel to Europe, and especially to Greece, would result in a significant commingling of two streams of humanity, the Shemites and the Japhethites. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Noah had predicted the future course of some of his descendants and had specifically prognosticated that while God would dwell in the tents of Shem, a reference to the work of the Lord through the family of Abraham to bring Christ into the world, he would also enlarge Japheth. The enlargement of Japheth seems best understood as a prediction of the intellectual and cultural advancements in which the Japhethites would excel. Of course, the family of Cain had shown that human genius does not equal to moral or spiritual excellence, and the Japhethites, who became the European Gentiles, developed some of the most morally depraved societies in human history even as, in fulfillment of Noah's prediction, they framed what we today would call Western civilization. No more profound example to this effect could be summoned than ancient Greece. It was, on the one hand, the mother of modern civilization in almost every respect, but on the other hand, it was a moral cesspool in which perverse, abusive, and deviant behaviors were not merely normalized, they were celebrated. For the excellence of these people to mean anything, it was necessary that their culture be redeemed by the reign of Christ. And for that to happen, God had to bring a band of lowly Jews with the message of a Galilean carpenter who had shown himself to be in fact the creator, savior, and sovereign of the universe. In the seaport city of Troas, Paul met a Gentile Christian named Luke, the author of the book of Acts who joined the party and became from this point forward a significant figure in Paul's life and ministry. Shortly after arriving in Troas, the call into Macedonia came 
through a dream in which Paul saw a man of that country pleading with him to come over and help. Picking up now in verse 10. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke would join them on the next stage of their journey as well. When he says, we sought to go, McGarvey suggests that the expression implies some difficulty in making the voyage, at least an expected difficulty. But if they expected a challenge, it was in fact remarkably easy and expeditious. The narrative insinuates that they had no delay in finding a ship bound for where they needed to go and getting passage on board for their whole company. Verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace. The expression, a straight course, comes from a Greek nautical term, referring to the most favorable wind. When we considered that they were sailing against the current, and yet completed the trip in two days, while the same trip on a later occasion, but sailing with the current in the opposite direction, took five days, then we must conclude that the conditions on this occasion were remarkably and unprecedentedly advantageous. The island of Samothrace was about halfway between Troas and Neapolis and would have been their place of lodging for the evening. It would also have been a preview of the sort of world they were entering. It was the chief seat of the Kiberian mystery religions. Mystery religions existed in Babylon, Egypt, and Greece, and were based on the belief that certain divine favors could be secured by initiation into a secret order whose worship rituals and teachings were carefully concealed from outsiders. It was this kind of thinking that contributed largely to the rise and influence of Gnosticism, which became one of the first major enemies of Christianity. On Samothrace, initiation into the mystery cult came with the right of asylum, Thus, many of the island's inhabitants were fugitives and criminals. Luke continues in verses 11 and 12, And the next day we came to Neapolis, the modern city of Kavala in Greece, and from there to Philippi. Traveling from Neapolis to Philippi would likely mean a journey down the Ignatian Way, one of the remarkable ancient highways that linked the various major regions of the Roman Empire. The Ignatian Way stretched 490 miles across Macedonia, connecting the Aegean to the Adriatic Sea, and it allowed for easy and safe passage from Neapolis to the inland colony of Philippi. Not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi, which was located in Judea and named for Tiberius Caesar and Herod Philip, this European city was named for the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon. In very ancient times, it rose to prominence as a center for the mining of gold and silver, and later achieved acclaim as the site of Octavian, who became Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony's victory over Brutus and Cassius in the Roman Civil War. Luke goes on to describe Philippi as the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. It is possible that he is speaking hyperbolically, but the New American Standard Version chooses to give the more realistic meaning for its translation that Philippi was a leading city of the district. It was not the capital or the most important city by any reasonable consideration. Amphipolis, Thessalonica, Pella, 
or Pelagonia would have easily surpassed it in size and political prominence, but it was an important city, and part of its importance was its colonial status. In fact, it was in honor of the aforementioned victory of Octavian and Antony that Philippi became a Roman colony. Colonies enjoyed three advantages over other cities in imperial territories. First, the right of self-government. Second, freedom from paying tribute to the emperor. And third, the same cultural rights as those who lived in Italy, including Roman dress, language, money, and holidays. These special qualities tended to make life in these cities better and more orderly. Thus, it would not have seemed a bad place for the evangelist to go. And Luke concludes verse 12, And we were staying in that city for some days. During this extended stay, however, they would have discovered that with all the city had to commend it, it was severely lacking in a knowledge of the one true God. James had earlier declared that Moses was preached in every city, but not quite every. This city evidently had no synagogue, which, if we are to judge early practices by later traditions, meant that there were not ten Jewish men to be found in its population. From this we would infer that the citizenry was shaped by pagan ideology, and that made it a less desirable field of labor for Paul. Up to this point, his approach has always been to go to the Jews first. When he and Barnabas diverged from that pattern in Lystra, they first had to keep the locals from worshiping them as gods and then from killing them as troublemakers. But nonetheless, this was the place the Spirit intended that they should go. It seems that they spent their initial time in the city inquiring as to whether there were any Jews or God-fearers living there at all, because verse 13 states, And on the Sabbath day, it's difficult to know if this means that the events here transpired on their first Sabbath in Philippi or on a Sabbath, but after a long period of time when they were in the city investigating. The latter is the way that I take it. We went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. This was likely the river Gangates, about one mile west of the city. In the places where synagogues could not be maintained, the Jews would often construct oratories, simple unadorned shrines where people could turn aside and pray, and often these were built by bodies of water that could be used for ceremonial washings. On some occasions, the oratory was exceedingly simple. Rees, for example, notes that it might be even a circle of stones in a grove of trees. Evidently, such a place was known to the people of Philippi to exist near this river, and if pious Jews or worshippers of Yahweh were to be found, they would be found there. Verse 13 continues, And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. It is possible that there had once been a stronger Jewish presence in the city. There were occasions when the Roman emperors expelled the Jews from Rome. We read about one under Claudius in Acts 18, but it was not the first. And it is possible, though uncertain, that those orders would have been enforced in at least some Roman colonies as well. If that was the case, it could be that a few devout women were left to do the best they could alone. However they came to be here, these women were in this place consistently on the Sabbath and for the purpose of prayer, 
And if any men were present, Luke did not consider them worthy of mention. Verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. It may be that Lydia is a nickname, reflecting the part of the world she came from, but it was evidently a popular name among women at that time. When Luke says she heard the preachers, especially Paul, this is to set her apart from the other women to whom they spoke. She listened, and evidently she listened very intently and carefully. Luke continues, she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The purple dye, which was extracted from the murex shell, with each mollusk yielding only one single drop, was extremely expensive and associated with great wealth. See, for example, Luke 16 and verse 19. So association with this trade implies that Lydia was a wealthy and entrepreneurial woman. She hailed originally from the Asian city of Theatira, over 300 miles away by land and sea, and she is described as a worshiper of God. We found this term once before in Acts 13.50, where it spoke of Gentile women who had become proselytes to Judaism, at least as much as they were able to do. Her devotion is remarkable. Whether she was a Jewess or a convert, she was miles away from anyone who could hold her accountable for her conduct in a community where she evidently received no religious instruction and would have been part of an extreme minority of people who refrained from labor on the Sabbath, which would have been quite a temptation to someone engaged in a highly competitive enterprise with pagan neighbors who had no such scruple. Yet she is described as faithful, at least as much as she knew how to be, thoughtful and consistent. It's important for us to have this portrait of Lydia's moral and religious character in our minds because it will help us interpret the next phrase. Verse 14 continues, The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. John Calvin used this passage as a proof text for his theories regarding the inability of unregenerate persons to respond to the gospel. To get a sense of what he meant, we can turn to his own commentary on Acts. Regarding these verses, he says that Lydia was blockish, or as in one translation of his work, blockheaded and blind until God gave her new eyes and ears to not only affectionately embrace the gospel, but even to understand it. However, Luke's pre-conversion description of Lydia, just like his similar descriptions of the Ethiopian and of Cornelius, show people with honest hearts, earnestly seeking to know and to please God. Lydia was striving to follow and worship God and was dedicated to prayer and devotion before Paul arrived in her city. She was not saved, but she was certainly pious. To describe her as blockheaded and blind is completely antithetical to what the Bible teaches. When Paul began to speak about Jesus, she was listening. Then, what could it mean to say that God opened her heart? First, it should be noted that in biblical vocabulary, the heart is a figure for the rational and emotional part of humanity what we might call the mind. See, for example, John 12, 40, Matthew 9, 4, Mark 2, 6, and Romans 10, 10. In fact, 
The phrase an open mind or the expression open-mindedness is common in modern English vernacular and carries the same idea as open heart or open-heartedness. Our minds or hearts are open to ideas that are in conformity with our understanding of how the world works and what truth is, and they are closed to those things that are in disharmony with the same. Through the preaching of Paul, Lydia's heart or mind was brought by God to realize the messiahship of Jesus was in conformity with the things she already believed and affirmed about the God of heaven, and she realized that to follow God, she must now become a follower of Christ and receive the justification that he alone could offer her. This is supported by the conclusion of Luke's statement, God opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul, or perhaps more clearly, as in the New American Standard Version, to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What is the response to the preaching of Jesus? Consistently, we have seen belief, repentance, and immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Baptism is presented as the assumed and obvious conclusion. That is how one responds to the good news concerning Jesus, because in baptism, sins are pardoned. Unity with the death of Jesus and his resurrection is accomplished, and a new life of identification with the kingdom of God in Christ is inaugurated. The text says that her household was baptized as well, and some have suggested that this implies the families of believers should be baptized on the basis of the patriarch's or matriarch's faith, including infants who do not have the capacity to believe or disbelieve themselves. There's nothing in the text, however, to indicate that there were infants in Lydia's household, and most of the data would indicate that there were not. The fact that no husband was mentioned and that the household was said to be hers indicates that she was not married, and this is made more likely by the reticence of the apostles to partake of her hospitality and stay in her home. But ultimately, the issue of infant baptism or any other matter regarded to who should be baptized and why must be settled by what the Scripture says. The Scripture here says nothing of infant baptism, but rather in keeping with all other texts, presents baptism as an intelligent response from the heart to the preaching of the gospel. That is something that infants cannot do. The more reasonable interpretation is that Lydia brought Paul and the other preachers to study with her servants and those who lived in her house with her, like Cornelius had done, and when they responded to the gospel as she had, they were baptized also. Lydia's concern as a Christian was to be faithful to the Lord. What is faithfulness, and how is it judged? Faithfulness involves three vital ingredients— knowledge, trust, and loyalty. To be faithful to the Lord Jesus, one must first know the principal facts and propositions concerning him, who he is, the Christ, the Son of God, what he has done, especially in his death, resurrection, and ascension, what he is doing, 
especially in his rule and reign from heaven, and what he will do when he comes again to fully accomplish his work of redemption. This, or at least an introduction to it, is what Lydia received from Paul's preaching. In trusting Jesus, one appropriates those facts and propositions to themselves and turns his or her heart toward Jesus in full recognition of his person and power and commitment to him alone as prophet, priest, and king. This is the idea conveyed in the word repentance. In loyalty or allegiance, one embarks on a lifelong, relentless pursuit of the will and knowledge of God in Christ, both to know it and to do it. This begins in baptism and continues through all of our days as we are led by the Spirit of God to walk in the light and be transformed into the image of Christ. Faithfulness, then, cannot be reduced to accomplishing a few tasks or believing a few doctrines. It can only be properly identified by the fruit of one's life. Do we manifest consistently through our years that we are growing and changing to be more and more in line with the will of God? I have been disillusioned with the terms conservative and liberal in religious discussion for quite some time. But lately I have found an alternative that has proven very helpful to me. Not conservative or liberal, but loyal or lawless. There are some people who I once would have called liberal, but I could not call them lawless. They, they may disagree with me on some of my conclusions, but everything about their lives shows that they are doing the best they know how to serve Jesus, and they fully respect his lordship. Conversely, there are some who are very conservative, but what are they conserving? And are they growing? I know of no one who is perfect and in need of no growth, so if a man is very conservative in regard to what he received from another or reached at some point in the past, but he is not manifesting growth in his knowledge and application of the will of Christ, then whatever he may be called, he is not loyal, because loyalty demands that imperfect people always pursue progress in the things they lack. Lydia asked Paul, if he saw that the faith which had qualified her to be baptized was being continually manifest in her life? And if so, would he and his company allow her to serve them? He was reluctant, evidently not because he questioned her faithfulness, but perhaps because she was a single woman, or perhaps because it was his custom not to take support from those he converted if he could avoid it, so that no one would accuse him of peddling the word. Yet Paul himself would acknowledge that some have been gifted by God with the opportunity to give to others, and they should be both allowed and encouraged to exercise that gift for the glory of Christ and the edification of his body, Romans 12, 6-8. So, verse 15 concludes, she persuaded us. The most unlikely place had been well chosen by God. The seed of the kingdom was now planted on a new continent, and only God could have anticipated the ways in which it would grow and flourish there. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, 
tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. From all the dark places of earth, heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.